Audi. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Big Travel Podcast, I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Lonely Planet's editorial director has had to travel, well, everywhere as a rather fortunate occupational hazard since starting with packing boxes in the warehouse at Lonely Planet 20 years ago. On this episode, we talk buried rock churches in Ethiopia, exploring Chilean fjords on a ferry, conquering crusader castles in Syria, and also discuss that primeval nomadic spirit in all of us which makes travel so appealing. Tom Hall is with us now on the Big Travel Podcast. Travel journalist is a dream job for many people. How did you get to that point? I sometimes wonder that myself. I I went on a gap year like a lot of people. And while I was away, I got a little bit interested in these wonderful books that I was carrying around with me. And I had a history degree. That doesn't really get you anywhere, does it? So when I came back, I thought, oh, I'll have a bit of a look into travel publishing and see what that's like. And I wrote off a load of letters to everyone. Um, Lonely Planet was bringing people on at that time. And they were looking for someone who would just, you know, pretty basic starting point, come in and help us pack books in our warehouse. So I did. Did that for a little while. We were expanding at the time. So I took on an editorial position. And I've continued to do that, a little bit of editing, a little bit of marketing, a little bit of online stuff ever since. And I've had about, I think it's about 18 different jobs in 20 years. But um, but here I am doing what I'm doing now. That's amazing. So you actually started packing books in, in the warehouse and yes. you've worked your way up to the top job. Is it the top job? Pretty much. Uh, you know, one of one of a few. I can't, I can't claim it's the absolute top job, but it, it's probably the top one in content. And as I think Lonely Planet's the best of what we do, I'm going to claim I've got the best job in travel. Well, I have to say, I have you on, you know, I always choose people that I, I, I like and I'm interested in um, on the podcast. And Lonely Planet is my guide of choice. It is just the best one out there. It always has been. I've probably got about 50 at home. Occasionally in the past, I've put them together in a pile and taken pictures of them. I'm, I'm that attached to it. People often ask me, you know, what's it like being a, a travel writer? Because it is the d- dream job. So I'm going to do I'm going to do the good bits first and then I'm going to ask for your bad bits because there must be some bad bits so tell me what has been the best experience about your life as a travel a travel journalist a travel writer I feel incredibly fortunate to have been to some of the places that I've been to for Lonely Planet and some of the places that it's inspired me to go to off off my own bat I was reflecting last week was World Travel Market and I was walking around some of the stands and visiting various people and I walked past the Ethiopia stand and um, Ethiopia was a place that I'd always wanted to visit and 
really working at Lonely Planet gave me the confidence to do that. And I can remember standing overlooking the the um, Church of St George in Lalabella, Ethiopia. These incredible rock carved churches. If you, I mean, people just Google them; they're amazing in itself. But to see them in the flesh is incredible. And this one church is carved down into the ground. So as you approach it, you can't really see it. And then you look down 10 metres and there's this incredible thing. It's just been carved out of rock. It's very beautiful. And it's surrounded by Ethiopian monks who are making this sort of strange noise at dawn. And that very vivid experience is probably the single best moment. I'd wanted to do it so much and there I was and that was a wonderful thing. On a slightly more prosaic note, I sometimes talk about travel a little bit like this for various um, various people. And I once found myself in a radio studio as the Proclaimers were playing a song two feet from me. And I thought, that's a nice thing to do too. So there's a, there's a very grand one and there's just, that was a laugh. So I, I think that that was the, the very best moments, those two. I've never been to Ethiopia. I'd love to go to Ethiopia. But I think people have a very preconceived idea about what Ethiopia is is and that's obviously due to the troubles and due to the famine and due to live aid and all those images we were terribly it was terribly sad to see those images back in the the 80s and and since then so what is Ethiopia like? Well Ethiopia is a great example of how travel can challenge your preconceptions and I wouldn't blame anybody for having those pictures come into their mind in fact there are they're a significant barrier I think to Ethiopia fulfilling its potential as a tourism destination the country's in a very interesting place right now. It's one of the fastest growing economies in the world. Its population is booming. There's a huge amount of investment in the country. It's actually changing very, very quickly. What I found, though, was a totally unique country with a singular history that you don't find in many places. Ethiopia was only colonised for a very brief period of time by the Italians. It, it, it didn't have that long history of occupation and outside influence. It's got an ancient strand of Christianity, which feels incredibly unique in itself. And it's an intensely beautiful country. If you can remove those thoughts of scorched deserts from your mind and think instead of somewhere that is both very green and very mountainous, that's my picture of Ethiopia. It's a great trekking destination, by the way. It has a, it has a, a population of, um, of um, indigenous wolves that you can go and find, the simian wolf, and some other wonderful wildlife that you can explore on these treks. And when you're in the mountains, and when you're going from these towns to towns, because there's a, there's a very distinct route around Ethiopia, when you're going around these, these towns in the north of the country, there are tourists. You're not completely alone. If you go to Lalabella, where I was talking about, there are other visitors there. But there's far fewer people than there would be in a place which offers everything that Ethiopia does. So wonderful from that perspective, still feels undiscovered and the infrastructure is growing and changing all the time. One of the key things I think that makes Ethiopia a great place is you can take internal flights which make what would be two-day bus journeys into an hour, a couple of hours on these on these very reliable Ethiopian Airlines planes. Ethiopian's a great airline. Then when you get off, you suddenly get back into that everyday life thing um so so it's wonderful in in that respect i'm really hopeful by the way um over the last few months there's been some very positive developments in its relationship with eritrea which is obviously a country it was at war at um, uh, a few years ago if those two nations can come together a little bit i know there's issues with eritrean authorities i don't want to talk too much about that they <laughs> get very boring very quickly but that would really make the whole horn of africa region into a fascinating combined destination. We're a little way away from that, but that would be my hope for the future there.
Where was the first place that Lonely Planet sent you that was out of your comfort zone? Because we're very lucky here in the UK being close to a lot of foreign countries that we can get to quite quickly. So we all kind of casually go to France when we're kids. But where is the where was the first place that you thought, oh, this feels kind of foreign and maybe a bit scary? There's probably two answers to that. I think the, the first one is a, a trip to Tanzania, which was such an interesting place, such an interesting destination, very beautiful country, probably the most beautiful country, the, the south of Tanzania and that southern Rift Valley scenery um, is, is very underappreciated in comparison to the north because everyone goes to Kilimanjaro and, you know, Ngorongoro. They are wonderful places, but the south, wow, it's just breathtaking. Out of Africa views, just incredible. But I remember that feeling on arrival in Dar es Salaam Airport. It was actually the heat. You arrive at Dar es Salaam at night and it must have been 35 degrees, incredibly humid, and we were queuing up to go through, go through passport control. And I thought, how on earth can I spend three weeks in this heat? It's just, it, it's unbelievable. And you get used to it and it's wonderful, but that was definitely one moment. The other one from a Lonely Planet perspective that I always found very interesting was my partner and I, who I met at Lonely Planet, we got the um, opportunity to go to Lisbon in Portugal. Ah, Lisbon, what a great place. The catch is you have to go and update the nightlife section of the Lisbon Guide. Well, that sounds like a bit of a laugh. It basically was six days of no sleep at all, no daylight at all, and going around every single club in Lisbon. There is a huge diversity of clubs in Lisbon. You've got incredibly trendy night spots. You've got sort of uh, ethnic music scene, Congolese music, uh, Mozambique music, and you're going around all these little places. That was definitely outside of my comfort zone, not being the world's biggest party animal. But wow, I learned a lot about clubbing in Lisbon. <laughs> that sounds amazing. That sounds like my ideal trip, actually. Here you go. You have to go around all the clubs. You have to drink. You have to eat. You have to party and stay out all night and... Like you said, the Portuguese in Lisbon in particular, they know how to do that really well. There must be a quite a lot of work, as you hinted there, that goes into writing a guidebook. And I think people underestimate that because it's quite bitty, isn't it? You've got to find, you know, not just the to go and find the best places and to write about them, but you've got to find the address. You've got to find the telephone number. You've got to find all those details that help make a guidebook a guide, you know, rather than just something that, that's pretty and nice to read. Yes, I, th I think everybody has this image of someone saying i'm just off to update the maldives and i'll see you in a month guys and pina colada and straw hat in hand and the the reality is quite a long way from that um in in many ways in order to be a successful contributor to lonely planet you you do have to be able to write but we've already written a lot about the world and what a lot of our contributors are doing is is updating so you would probably find that the description for a large number of towns around the world doesn't change hugely from one research run to the next. What does change is those things you're talking about, practical details, opening hours, um, you know, good places going bad, the sort of famous old Lonely Planet intro, and new places opening up that need that sort of road testing in a way. Now, we can never eat at every restaurant and we can never sleep in every hotel, but each one still gets visited and checked and we still value hugely those contributions that we get from our from our readers from travelers so all of that remains as important as it has been the challenge i think is that there are now so many ways that that information exists without us having to go and research it if you look on google maps you've got opening hours in there there are all manner of websites and sources of data that claim to have this information what we've found is that our own information is almost always more accurate so what do we do with that? And that's one that we scratch our heads about all the time. You know, what's, what, is the what is the acceptance within our audience for a little bit of inaccuracy in there? And what we found actually is 
the more accurate we are, the more people trust us and the more Lonely Planet remains a relevant part of what they do. Do you feel the weight of your influence? Because it's quite a responsibility, isn't it? If you recommend somewhere and you include somewhere, you can't include every tiny cafe, bar and restaurant. And if you include somewhere, it might have a tremendous impact on the people that, that you know, the visitors they're going to get and their business, you know, to the detriment of the one around the corner that you haven't mentioned. Do you feel that responsibility? Absolutely. It's one of the hardest things, I think, is getting that right. If you if you know that people are going to really take seriously what you're recommending, go in that cafe, not that one. Go to that beach, not that one. Do this activity, not that. Firstly, you've got to be very cautious about the impact of that. Now, there are plenty of amazing places in the world. Lonely Planet will never include in its content for precisely that reason. The most perfect beach that we can't tell people about. Because if hundreds of people went there, it would be completely ruined. The thing that's happening now in the world is... The influence of social media and visual mediums of storytelling mean that that effect is being felt in lots of different ways in lots of different places. If you if you look at Pulpit Rock in Norway in the, in the fjords, mm-hmm. everybody wants a selfie there. That's a really interesting thing like, to think about in the future. Is what does that mean? You know, we 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 hear it from people. They say to us, "Oh, in your books, we really want good photo spots. Tell us where the ultimate selfie can be taken." And um, we want to do that, but part of the challenge. And I think it's Lonely Planet's role in part in this global industry that, that we find ourselves in is to is to make sure that things like that don't take away from the, the, the positive impact you can have by going somewhere and don't actually make somewhere a less nice place to visit. The so, over-tourism over thing is, is a big, a significant issue now because it's not just about guidebooks. It is about one photo of a tiny hotel Riyadh pool in Morocco that suddenly you know, it gets picked up by an influencer on Instagram and then suddenly everyone wants to go there. And that rock in Norway you were talking about, which I haven't I haven't been visited the rock, but I've heard stories that now everyone's got this beautiful picture of this overhanging rock. Is it overhanging a yeah, fjord? Overhangs or, a fjord yeah. Yes. Yeah. And um it looks amazing and there there's one person standing on the rock and but what you don't see is out of sight is everyone queuing for about two hours for that one photo. It's like a you know, busloads of people are waiting out of shot. So, you know, it it's it's not real. And that's what another thing that's very difficult. And, you know, when it isn't real and you've got all those people there trampling down the fauna and the flora and similar things happening in Venice and in Thailand and the Philippines, people actually closing beaches. But what I picked up on there is actually you said that you hold back information. You, do you really hold back information? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, we don't we don't have a sort of secret book or anything like that. of sort of things that pe- only people who work for Lonely Planet know. But all of our contributors... Sometimes, you know, most of the time without us having to say this, but but it can be a dialogue between them and, and their editors would say that I'm really thoughtful about this. And there's and there's two different cases, really. You know, there is this place. I'm not sure whether to put it in or not. In truth, it is often better to list somewhere and give people the context and and present some information about it. If you are giving people the, the, the right information and doing that responsibly, that is better than there being no information on something. I think that's generally true. It's not always true, but it's generally true. The other thing is whether you actually don't include a destination, uh, whether some, something's in and you take it out. And there are occasions when we've done that. I was talking about Eritrea, actually. We, we didn't go back to Eritrea the last time we went there. We didn't, we didn't feel like it was somewhere that was somewhere that hand on heart we could recommend to our travellers. And that was really our expert on that on that country, Jean-Bernard Carrier, who's a, a fabulous writer and, and knows his destination very well, saying, um, you know, look, when you're doing this book, it was Ethiopia, Eritrea, Djibouti. And he said, look, Eritrea, let's just cool it a little bit there. 
tough, tough call. That, but we'll back them and all of those decisions are, are conversations really and, and I'm really hopeful that we can get Eritrea back in very soon. So what secret destinations have you taken out that you can't tell <laughs> I can't comment too much on that but but really you, you would be looking at things like beaches. Beaches are, are a big one and also a perfect tiny cafe. You've got a perfect tiny cafe in Ho Chi Minh City or Nha Trang in Vietnam. If you think about the impact of of listing that place you've got to be quite thoughtful about that bearing in mind what you have been saying you're very correct I think to talk about the impact of social media and, and over tourism that way I think the role now of content providers is to give that context not to ignore things in the way you might have done in the past but to say if you're going to go consider going at these times or here's one of several alternatives or the, the other thing that I think is very sensible is to give vague guidelines so the east coast of Ithaca in Greece has some fantastic beaches spend a bit of time exploring them there's much less likelihood than saying you've got to go to this one and every yacht in the in you know in the sea is going to be aiming for that one part of travel is the beauty of having that time to explore yourself, which is wonderful if you do have the time. But where guidebooks like The Lonely Planet come in is that if you don't have the time, it's great to take a book and go, right, I'm going to go there, 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 and almost tick it off. But I think people are travelling a little bit uh, more responsibly than that these days, and they, they will sort of explore. It's not just about hitting those sort of high spots. Although one of the, my favourite things about Lonely Planet is that, that glossy map that you have at the beginning with all the little highlights. I mean, that, that really does help guide people's trips. Yeah, and I think I think one of the areas um, where there's much more work to be done is in presenting to travellers the sense of a journey. So a, a highlight map is a very useful thing, but particularly online, I think you can do more to demonstrate to people how you might piece those things together, what you might see on the way, and fundamentally to continue with the basic mission, which is understand the obstacles that, that people face in, in putting together a wonderful adventure, understand those obstacles and show people how to get around them. That's the job. And more and more people are travelling than ever. So the over-tourism, the guiding people to specific destinations, inst Instagram, social media, it's going to become a bigger issue. But why do you think people, more people are travelling than ever? The first thing I think is that we, we can be guilty of taking a very Anglo-centric and Western-centric view of the world. And one of the things that is driving very fast growth of tourism in many parts of the world is, is travel from uh, non-English speaking countries and in particular from China. It was fascinating at World Travel Market last week. I was talking to people from tourism organisations all over the world. And I, one of the questions I always ask is, who are your biggest markets? And China just goes up and up and up and up and up. And so the importance of Chinese travellers is, is huge. And the needs of that group are actually quite different in a lot of ways. That's one of the reasons why it's, it's going up. I mean, one in, I think it's one in four Lonely Planet books that sold now is in a non-English language. And we publish in at least 12 languages in print. It changes sort of goes up and down sometimes because some some languages drop off and some come on that's constantly growing and that's actually a real area of I think opportunity is to do a bit more there the other one I think is it's easier to travel than it has been um, if you look at the prices for long-haul airfares and someone was telling me the other day just to just to give an example they had a fare that was um, London Beijing Hong Kong uh, Vienna London and it was in June, so it was a decent time of year, and it was £350. Oh my God. And I, and I think, God, that's such a great fare. Um, there's a lot of competition on long-haul routes now, a lot of great options if you're going through the Middle East particularly, and it means that the, the barrier for getting there is, is lower. If you think how long you might need to work to earn 350 quid, maybe another 400 quid for your expenses while you're there, it's accessible, and that's wonderful. I'm not surprised people are taking advantage of that. And people that can't afford 
you know, unfortunately, it's really difficult to get on the housing market yes, and things is. like that these days. So I think people's priorities have changed. It's like, well, why bother saving for something that you actually can't afford? I might as well just go around the world or, you know, travel or pop off here for the weekend and enjoy myself. Yes, I, I think that's right. And we have that closer to home as well. While the growth of low cost carriers might have slowed somewhat as a sense of sort of saturation, people's enthusiasm has, has not. Tallinn in Estonia was a, a city that we listed in our best, best places to go um, this year, our best in travel list and what i find interesting is the number of people once that destination's on your radar the number of people say oh, i've been to tallinn oh i did this i did that raving about it as a food destination tallinn sounds yeah like it's a great it's a food, food destination food and beer here. i've been there as well Terrific, it's a, yeah, and it's it's yeah. one of those beautiful i think people started talking about it about 10 years ago maybe more and it was sort of under the radar but it's kind of sort of stayed stayed a little bit under the radar it hasn't gone all sort of Prague on us. No, no, I don't think it has. Actually, really easy to combine with Helsinki. You can go there, you can spend a couple of days in Helsinki. It's a really interesting city in itself. Then take the ferry. And if you're there in summer, Tallinn's got a load of sort of spa hotels and beach hotels that are really close on the Baltic shore. Yeah. So, we're talking a bit about your travels. You've been, where in particular has stood out? I had a, an absolutely amazing, um, amazing trip to Syria, actually, in, in 2011, a few years ago. I know very well when I was there because my US visa got cancelled subsequently as a result of having been there at that time. It, Syria was really poised for the sort of growth that I think we're now seeing in Jordan. And at the same time, the Arab Spring was taking place and lots of people looking at Syria and thinking, this is quite... It's quite interesting what's going to happen here. I had a week there just going around some ancient sites. I'm fascinated by uh, sort of late Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. And Syria has some incredible things, had some incredible things and still has some incredible things in a lot of ways. And I found this quite remarkable country, very beautiful, very unexpected in, in a lot of ways. Um, it, it, some parts of it looked like Tuscany and other parts of it felt like the most remote desert that you're ever going to go to. But the history came flying at you. Uh, the Euphrates River, you had, you know, Damascus, with its sort of biblical sites. You had, um, you know, the Crusader castles there, which were, you know, an incredible oddity in some ways, finding these Crusader castles that seemed so European. You know, they, they looked like they could be in Wales or something like that. And, and there you were looking at these things. Mixed in with, with real hospitality as well, the sort of traditional Arabic hospitality, very much alive and well. And it, it's been a real heartbreaker for me to see what's happened since then. I, I remember spending a lot of my time there with just young people just coming up to you and they just wanted to talk to you and they just wanted to engage with you. And I thought, God, you know, I keep my fingers crossed for you guys all the time. You must wonder what happened to I did, those yeah. people. Yeah, when you look at my photographs, I, I really do. I think hopefully Syria has such a wealth of ancient sites and historical treasures that even in the event of there being some significant destruction, and there has been in places like Aleppo, that there is still enough left that there's something for them to build on in the future. I, I hope that that is the case. I think if you look at a, a you know, different example right next to it of Jordan that has you know, lots of similar sites, obviously hasn't had the political instability and as a place that really has potential, it's another good one. But yeah, the, the Syria trip was a, was a very special one. We spoke a little bit about the beginning about the light and shade of travel mm. and obviously travel is very wonderful and helps expand the mind and gives you all these incredible experiences and memories. But has there ever been any time when you felt Oh God, I shouldn't have done this. I, th I think actually some of the hardest things have been since I started travelling with my children. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> smiling in smiling in recognition. That's a little bit because I think 
one of the nice one of the really nice things that I always kept close to me when I was doing things like backpacking around South America I didn't didn't really know what I was doing going to places like you know Morocco exploring a new destination for the first time really sort of you know throwing myself around without much much thought for any risk or consequences was well if something goes wrong it's just me yeah, it's, 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 it's my, my risk that I'm taking. And I remember thinking that while I was having a spectacularly bad tuk-tuk ride in India where, the, where the, the driver was, you know, we were coming in from the airport. It was the middle of the night, didn't know where we were, and he was trying to get $100 out of us. And my brother and I were sort of saying, you know, it's not going to happen. We have, and he was saying, I'm going to leave you in this dangerous-looking alleyway for a while. In the end, apparently, we hackled him down to below what we should have paid anyway. I felt a little bit guilty about that, but not that guilty. Um. But I had that thought of, you know, if I did find myself in that alleyway and I was left with no possessions, I'd, I'd probably be all right. But the thought that I might put my own children into that position, actually, I have found quite a difficult thing to, to work through. And last year, we went to Namibia um, with, the, with the kids. What a brilliant destination. Incredible, wonderful country. Recommend it to anybody, especially people traveling with families. But at one point we were doing this drive from the northwest to the coast at Swakopman and the the road was just a strip of dirt and the it was dead pan flat. It was almost going across a salt flat but it wasn't and it was like that for sort of 40 miles this road and I looked outside and there was no one around, baking hot and I just thought what happens if this car breaks down at this point? I didn't want to stand there, just sort of standing there. And it was quite a disturbing thought in a lot of ways. But of course it didn't. And, you know, a few miles down the road, we drove past someone who had broken down. And we stopped to, to try and help them. And they said, no, there'll be a pickup truck on the way. And, you know, you can sort these things out. And sometimes you have to work through that a little bit. That's definitely a sort of hairy moment in a way. And, and I suppose, like everybody, I have had my concerns about security of going to various places in the world. And, you know, would, would I do certain trips? That said, one of the advantages of, of, of traveling in the sort of information age, as it were, is that there's generally help. You're probably not going to blunder into something which is, you know, very bad unless you are unfortunate. And you know what? Unfortunate things can happen to you at home. And so it is best, I think, to feel the fear, but do it anyway. Yes. And if you want to go and see something, go and see it, you know. And, and, and you know what? If you get halfway there, like, you know, we were talking about the Ethiopia trip. We got halfway to the Eritrean border and I got turned back. Well, I had a go. You know, it's okay. And I hope that I hope that people aren't put off by a sense of concern or, or a sense of fear. And, uh, you know, your kids are probably more adaptable than you realise, is the other thing. Since having my kids, my, it, it sort of coincided with a lot of my travels sort of changing anyway. And so we, we go to Spain every six weeks at the moment. And they're brilliant travellers in, in Spain and, and everything like that. But we don't we haven't done many weekends away, like locally. And this weekend we went to Dorset, to Lovely. the southwest of England. And the drive down there, honestly, I thought we were all gonna die. <laughs> it was it was okay. And then the weather turned and we were it was a gale, there were trees coming down, there were people it felt like people were throwing buckets of water in some Hollywood movie sort of over us. There were there was deer, you know, potentially crossing. We took a wrong turn and we ended up down these single track roads where cars are going very fast at directly opposite you. And it was absolutely terrifying. And that's just in Dorset down the coast. And you you know, these things can happen everywhere. But like you say, when it's just you and it's just you running away from a situation or getting yourself out of a situation, the fear isn't there as much as when you're responsible for small people and you think, oh God, like why the hell did we do this? And I, I actually felt that just on the trip down to Dorset. But on the plus side, you know, we had a wonderful time playing on the beach and 
it was absolutely glorious and it really made me think I want to take my kids away more I think now they're five uh, they're six and three I want to go further afield I want to travel more I follow loads of people on Instagram who have ditched school and are world world schooling their kids for a year and I have to say that looks very appealing is anything I mean you've got a grown-up job and I'm just a, a freelancer does that appeal to you sort of jacking it in for a big for a longer period of time I, I think the thought has crossed my wife and I's mind that that we should do that I'm very struck by how how much enthusiasm my own children have for travel you know we've got one of those giant world maps which is sort of wallpaper on, on the wall of one of their bedrooms and I, you know we're sort of pointing at things and all right we'll go here and we'll see this and we'll see that but it is in the context of we've got a stable home base we've got somewhere that we will come back to at the end of that so I'm full of admiration for people who do it and I, I think it probably would be a fabulous thing to do it might be a little bit of a jump too far at the moment but you never know in the future maybe when they're a, a few years older and, and, you, and you're not so conscious of just how little they are and also if you've got a job that enables you to travel and that doesn't necessarily give you the wanderlust or the lack the feeling of the lack of wanderlust in your life because you, that box is being ticked i think that's a very very good point i am very fortunate you know lonely planet's owned by a man he lives in nashville tennessee i have to go and see him four times a year i have to go Oh my God, I'm obsessed. Go. <laughs> I'm currently obsessed with the series Nashville. Oh, and I haven't go. been to Nashville. Exactly I've been to like Tennessee. That. I've only been to Chattanooga. <laughs> but I'm obsessed with Nashville and I really want to go just because it, it looks like there's just music on every corner. Yeah, there is. It's, it's, it's a really funny place. I mean, British Airways have just started flying direct to Nashville. Thank you, British Airways. They <laughs> seem to have done it just for me. Uh, I'm very grateful to them. You now have a customer of a life as long as I need to do that Just trip. one. Yeah, just I'm one. sure they'll have others. It, I might join you. Pretty much the only international flight that goes into Nashville. Otherwise, you have to change in Atlanta or Chicago. Easy to change, easy to get there. But it's one of those cities that it's a little bit like Memphis. So not necessarily somewhere that you would think, I'm going to go there. That's my priority. I think the TV series is sort of changing people's view on that. And also the whole country music you know, becoming so popular around the world. When you're there, you, you walk down Broadway, which, you know, Broadway in Nashville, it's quite touristy, let's be honest. But the music that comes out of you is infectious. And if you've got someone with you who knows what they're doing and they can take you to the right places, you'll just think this, this is the most fun I think I've ever had. Actually, a night out in Nashville is absolutely brilliant. And the food scene is terrific. There's some great hotels opening now. The whole area of East Nashville has got this really sort of cool vibe about it and they have a signature dish waiting to explode around the world as the new thing and i mean nashville hot chicken it is deep fried chicken smothered in this incredibly spicy sauce if you order the, the really really spicy version absolutely delicious impossible to eat messy gooey and just wonderful and and it's a real only in nashville thing you go elsewhere and it's it's, it's pathetic you should bring it over set up a stall or something outside that's the, the idea planet. i've yet to find anywhere that does it well so i think you have to go there to get the full effect so this is really hard because what have i missed because you've traveled so much what have i missed one of the real defining trips for me was traveling down through uh, through chile chile is chile is an amazing destination so long and thin it's just constant change as you move north, south or south, north. Going from Santiago down to Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego is a real journey into a lost world. And it's oddly accessible is one of the things about it. There aren't many places in the world where you can go and there are sort of long distance ferries that just bimble around. But if you go down to Puerto Montt in southern Chile, or sort of middle southern Chile, as it were, 
you can take this ferry that goes down to Puerto Natales, which is the gateway to the Torres del Paña National Park. You're probably familiar with those pictures of the, the Horned Mountains. Now, the Torres del Paña is a wonderful place, without a shadow of a doubt. It is one of the great national parks in the world. But it paled for me into insignificance next to this three-night, four-day boat journey through the fjords, going past these tiddly-widdly villages that, that didn't seem like they ever saw anyone visit apart from this boat which came through to the extent this sort of lowering dvds over the side of the here are your new dvds we'll take these ones away here's your food you know real sort of supply vessel stuff and the hills next to the water these sort of wooded misty very strange and mysterious things and, you, and you, anything could be living there you know dinosaurs whatever you know and just to spend a few days doing that i thought that was a that was a real mind-altering journey for me that places like that still existed in the world that is a journey i would hugely recommend to people that maybe take more blankets than i did because <sighs> it was cold but so what such a wonderful thing and that was a brilliant journey so that would be one if I could add, just have, just have, I think that um, Australia generally, yes, super long way. Yes, it's very well, well explored. But the red centre of Australia, including Uluru and the, the various rocks around it, is pretty much as close to being in an alien environment as you can find. And, and I mean, I certainly thought that until I went to northwest Namibia, which actually looks quite like it. So strange similarities there. But the culture is so different and the distances are so vast. It, it was just a fabulous place to go i haven't been to the interior of australia i've been to the i've been to the east coast and all along there but i'm going to australia new zealand and fiji next christmas not this christmas oh, but wonderful. next christmas i really would like to go to uluru and all those places you talked about and see those incredible landscapes that just go on forever and meet those weird people <laughs> well i mean you know if you get you get on the train sorry people <laughs> listening in central australia and we should say i did not meet any weird people i only met very nice people but we um i took the train from adelaide to alice springs and and um it goes on to darwin you know real cross-continent journey we went to sleep on this train and i was quite excited woke up early the next morning and wound up the blind and i thought you know what? i really hope this is that sort of orange dirt with kangaroos hopping around the place and i wound it up and there it was with some kangaroos bouncing i was so pleased i told everyone this and one of the reasons i was keen on working for Pant in the first place was my dad had loads of their books when we were growing up and i went back home and i said dad it amazing you know he's this was brilliant you know we saw these kangaroos it was great and he liked train so he went off and he said, I'm going to go and do that journey. And he came back absolutely furious. Didn't see a single kangaroo ah. on the train. So that was all my fault. But yeah, great, great place. That's the, uh, that is the exact trip I want to do. I really want to do that trip. So I've just got to organise it with two kids. We'll <laughs> They'll love it too. That goes. Two more questions for you. One is about the philosophy of travel, which I don't know if you guys think about at Lonely Planet, but why do you think we travel? Why is, so, is travel so important? And why should we continue to travel? I think that... There is a, a nomadic spirit in, in everybody. That's something really quite primeval, originally driven by a sense of need, and I think now driven by a variety of different factors. But it's the same endorphins that are, that are released. I have that experience whenever I get on a train to go anywhere. The train starts moving. Oh, we're going somewhere fantastic, you know. We might be going to Birmingham, you know, and, and, and yet, you know, you have that, you have that. Um, I really like Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. So uh, there's something in there which isn't easily explained, I don't think, which, it, which is, which is uh, an instinct. Now I think that there is a, a sense of travel being a part of your lifestyle. So you've talked a little bit about these influences with their wonderful pictures of their 
time in the Riyadh and, and things like that. There's an aspirational aspect to travel, which I think is becoming amplified all the time. And I hope that we can keep that reasonable and, and realistic. I think that's very important. Travel is attainable. We've talked a little bit about the cost of it. It's doable. It's manageable. In terms of what you get for what you spend, it's probably the best money that you can spend. I can't think of anything better to spend your money on than an interrail pass. Name me something better. I mean, maybe a bicycle, I don't know, but an interrail pass is right there for everyone. Um, and, and the experiences that you can get with that, there's a vast number of them and they're vastly varied. So I think that that's, that's great. I think I travel as well because the more you do, the more you realise just how wonderful the world is the people in it and the things that you can see and the, and the things that you can find. And it's easy for us all to walk around looking at the ground, but we've got to take our chances to get out and, and do that. I sometimes think, I don't, I don't care where's next. I, don't, I honestly don't care, you know, but let's keep these things going and, 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 and get out there and the, and the returns are, are great. My last question for you is about music, because I always think that travel and music go hand in hand for many, many reasons. And one of the reasons is that it helps cement beautiful memories. So if you had to choose one song that reminded you of a place of time of travel, could be good or bad, what would that song be? First thing that comes to my mind is a song by a band called Television, and the song's called Venus, and it's from Marky Moon, which I think lots of people might have heard as a really classic album. The album's written in New York, and when I was there last year, I wanted to do stomping around lower manhattan listening to marky moon and that song just captured the city for me new york's really different to what it was like when they were there in the 70s but you can still find little elements of it and and listening to that it, it, since then that's become the memory that's associated with that song and i think the song is just brilliant as well <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom, for that inspirational chat about travel and the world we live in, and also a bit about the philosophy of travel, which I really enjoy talking about. I hope you do too. Next week, we have Sharon Latham, music and football photographer, and the following week, train guru, the man in seat 61. Yeah.